standard issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here and welcome to this week's or one of this week's Sunday Chops episodes. In the other episode, you will hear our Mickey talking to author Daisy Buchanan about her brilliant book, The Sisterhood, which is about, rather unsurprisingly, sisters. In this episode, you will get the remainder of the interview that we did a few weeks back with the author Sophie Hanna. We spoke to her about her book, How to Hold a Grudge, which is also now a podcast. But we also spoke to her about loads of other great stuff because, well, you just do when you get Sophie Hanna in the studio, don't you? So we spoke to her about Poirot. She, of course, writes the new Poirot books. And we talked to her about that, about what was coming next for Poirot and about how what Sarah Phelps did with Poirot on television over Christmas, whether that impacts on what Sophie will write next. And also we spoke to her about a new project she's working on called Dream Author, in which she's helping authors, in her words, get out of their own way to get some more writing done. So that's coming up now. Thanks for listening. Until next week. Oi, oi, Mickey here. So, yeah, you know, we love making the Standard Issue podcast and we're well chuffed that so many of you are listening. A little playful punch on the arm to each and every one of you. You smashers. Now then, you can help us keep making content that champions women by bobbing on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue. And any spare bunts that you might have, a little bit of coin, a little bit of dollar, just pop it our way and we are supremely grateful. And just so you know what's coming up in that there women championing content, you may have seen a trailer for the forthcoming Sally Wainwright series, Gentleman Jack, about to appear on the BBC. Well, we only went out lunch in a bloody trailer on the set of it. That's right. And you can hear our chat with Sally sometime very soon. Mmm, mystery. Please give generously. We are here in the fine city of Cambridge. I'm so close to my house. I kind of thought about coming out in pyjamas today <laughs> with best-selling crime writer and woman of many other talents, Sophie Hannah. Hello. Jen is also here. Word. <laughs> we would like to talk to you, Sophie, about your book, which is now our podcast, How to Hold a Grudge. Yes. And it's got a subtitle, which is From Resentment to Contentment, The Power of Grudges to Transform Your Life. It's a very long title, but the subtitle's crucial because that's the bit that says you can actually take your grudges and get them to work like magic to make your life better in so many ways. Are you a natural grudge holder? Yes. So I've always held grudges and I've always been aware that my grudges don't cause me any distress and that I actually enjoy them. And (laughs) um, and how this became clear to me was that I have always read a lot of self-help books. I have genres that I love, mainly crime. That's, you know, 90% of what I read is crime. But when I'm not reading crime, I'm reading self-help. And that's been the case for well over 15 years. And I noticed that there would always be a point in a self-help book, however brilliant I thought the book was, there would always come a point where the self-help book would say something like, and you must not hold grudges and you must always let it go, let it go, move on, think positive if you're clogged up with grudges and resentments. And, and I would always think there's something inaccurate about this because I have grudges, but I don't feel clogged up. I don't feel resentful. I don't feel bitter. In fact, my grudges help me to feel the opposite. They actually help me to deal with those negative feelings. And, and this is the bit that's really counterintuitive and that people struggle most with when they read my book or listen to my podcast, holding grudges in the right way 
has always helped me to forgive people much more easily. People can't get their heads around that at all because we've all been taught that holding a grudge is the opposite of forgiving somebody and it's not. And so eventually I thought, I'm going to write a self-help book and I'm going to write a self-help book that says grudges are good for you because I know mine are good for me and I think grudges can also be good for the world at large, not only for the grudge holder. And to show that actually the best way to move on and the best way to forgive emotionally is to allow yourself and give yourself official permission to hold that grudge in the right way. And the, the in the right way part is crucial. Could you give an example of, uh, of a grudge that you hold? First of all, no grudge is silly or trivial. All grudges have different roles. So, I mean, in my book and on the podcast, I talk about my grudge grading system. So a 10 carat grudge is the strongest and most powerful kind of grudge. Usually, if you have a 10 carat grudge, that will be a grudge where the grudge worthy behavior has done you real harm and the person almost definitely intended some level of harm. A one-carat grudge, which might be the silly and trivial ones, it doesn't really matter who it's about. It could be the postman, it could be your husband or whoever, but a one-carat grudge very often would be something where the person didn't mean you any harm at all. Mm -hmm. So that obviously, you deduct points in terms of severity. If the person really meant no harm, and did something grudge-worthy by accident. It's like a sentencing system. Yeah, it's it. like, how serious is this <laughs> grudge? And in order to determine the grade of your grudge, there's about between 12 and 15 questions that you answer. So including things like, did they mean you harm? How long have you had this grudge? How much harm was done to you by the grudge-worthy behaviour? All kinds of questions. So that's how you assess the grade of the grudge. But, you know, people will often say, well, isn't something really silly and trivial too irrelevant and too unimportant to hold as a grudge. And I always say, well, that question is based on the assumption that grudges are bad. If grudges aren't bad, if grudges are great, as I believe they are, then why not hold a little one? I mean, no one would ever say to you, get your earring collection out and throw away all the small earrings and only keep the big ones. Because there's nothing wrong with small earrings and there's nothing wrong with small grudges. Some of the smallest, silliest ones are the most entertaining. In the book, I have an example of every carrot rating. So I have like Mm. my top 10 grudges and I choose one from each carrot rating category. Mm -hmm. I'm aware this is making me sound extremely eccentric, but it really works. It It really (laughs) works as a grudge categorising system. For me, a grudge is a story. It's not a feeling. Dictionaries say a grudge is a feeling. That's okay. my. That's the main starting point of the different theory that I have about grudges. So for me, a grudge is a story you want to remember because it's useful to you in the present and might be useful to you in the future. It might protect you. It might inspire you. It might motivate you. And that story I always want to remember because... You know, it's a situation where somebody is being blatantly unreasonable and trying to involve you in their unreasonable behaviour. And so I I always want to sort of remind myself that if anyone tries to do that, I'm not going to be involved in that in any way. It protects you because you then alter your expectations and behaviour around that person. Does that mean that a grudge essentially is held forever? No, not at all. So I I recommend in the chapter in the book called How to Be a Responsible Grudge Holder, (laughs) I recommend that everyone does a regular audit of their grudge cabinet. So first of all, everyone should have a grudge cabinet. It needn't be an actual cabinet. 
every grudge brings an opportunity. So when you have a new grudge, you think, what's the opportunity here? I recently accrued a new grudge. Somebody, in fact, it was yesterday. That was how recent it was. At least it wasn't one of us to. <laughs> Somebody behaved in an inconsiderate and indiscreet way. And I was, you know, I've got to the point now where I'm so advanced in my grudge holding methods, I can almost bypass the annoyance and upset altogether because I'm straight into thinking, this is a fantastic new grudge. What can I learn from this one that I haven't learned from other ones? And what I learned from this particular new grudge was I need to be much more careful about who I trust with what information. Ideally, Writing down your grudge stories is useful. So I would say if you can have a grudge cabinet that's an old handbag, an old shoebox, a box of any kind, a drawer in your bedside table, anything where you can actually write down your grudge stories and the list of lessons you've learned from each one and the list of benefits that you've had in your life because of having that grudge story that all can then go in your grudge cabinet. And that has the effect, it sounds bonkers, I'm aware of that, but it has the effect that it gets the grudge out of you and it becomes a separate object in itself. And that object becomes a sort of symbolic, commemorative justice object. Like a Horcrux. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't feel the person's got away with it scot-free because you've got your grudge. It's almost like a little certificate. And weirdly, that then frees you up emotionally to forgive them straight away if you want. That's an interesting point there because one of the reasons I don't hold grudges is because I don't have a particularly good memory. Ah, And there's sometimes, if I haven't seen people Mm. for ages, I can be a good 20, 30 minutes into a conversation with them before I think, Oh, do you know what? The last time I spoke to you, you pissed me off so much. But because the time has passed, yeah. it's completely gone. That would help my grudge holding, certainly. You don't hold on to the negative feelings at all. I mean, that that's, uh, that's where the dictionaries are all wrong. The dictionaries all say a grudge is a feeling of resentment or anger or hostility occasioned by a perceived insult or injury. Yeah. And that is so untrue. It's a the, life lesson is what you're the, saying, the, isn't it? Yeah, the feelings happen as a result of the grudge sparking incident or GSI, as I call it. <laughs> in the so the GSI happens. You have all the feelings, whether it's anger, annoyance, upset, whatever. And those feelings are totally natural and totally justifiable. And it's not a problem that we have those feelings. But that is not the grudge because those feelings can pass And the grudge remains as a story that you want to remember because it tells you something useful either about that person Mm. or it points you in the right direction of how you want to behave. The thoughtless behaviour that I created a grudge about yesterday, it was thoughtlessness of a very particular kind and it's absolutely made me think, oh, I must make sure that if I'm ever in a situation that I would just check with the person that it was okay for me to do that thing. Yeah in precisely the way that the, my grudgee did not check with me. And so now I have a new kind of good behaviour that I always want to do. And so it's inspiring, it's motivating. And the feelings of annoyance or anger, if they're there at all, they just pass when they're ready. And so this is how I, you know, normally I don't argue with the dictionary. I agree with the dictionary about most words and their meanings. But I just became aware that most of my grudges have literally no negative feelings attached to them anymore at all i don't have grudges because usually i just have it out with someone oh interesting i just say you're wronging at the time 
in a variety of ways occasionally. So let's say you're in the situation I was in yesterday. I was minding my own business, as mm-hmm. I so often am, immediately before a grudge-worthy incident. <laughs> minding my own business, I suddenly discover that this person has done this thing that I think is highly grudge-worthy. What sort of categorisation are we talking? Inconsiderate and indiscreet. So where is that on the scale? Let's say, let's say you found out that your best friend Mary had told her entire book group about your secret affair with Fred and you had asked her never to tell anyone. I mean, and that's so, not great, is it? Yeah. But she only did it because it's relevant to, you know, they're reading Captain Corelli's Mandolin and, and everyone's discussing <laughs> okay. affairs. And so yeah. she goes, well, you know, my friend is seeing this man called Fred. So you find out she's done this. But they're not going to, like, tell my husband. Who knows? I mean, they might. I suppose. Let's say there's thirty of them. They might be on Twitter right now doing it, Jen. Shit, (laughs) Mary, what have you done? Okay, but in that situation, are you the kind of person which is like the opposite of me, who would just pick up the phone and go, "Mary, I'm bloody pissed off with you. What the hell did you think you were doing? Would you always tackle it head on? Usually, yeah. If I felt if if I felt it was worth it, and it sounds like Mary has been a bit of an asshole, so (laughs) she. Also, I think that people need to learn. A lot of the time, I don't think Mary did it to spite me. No, she didn't. But Mary needs to know it's not cool. Yeah. She can't do that kind of thing. So, so this is really interesting. Mary will learn a lesson from so, this Yes, well. absolutely. So one of the chapters in my book is, what kind of personality traits make us more or less likely to be grudge holders? Am I a psychopath? Is that what we're about no, to do? No, no, no. no. So you're, what you've just said, and I, I actually give this example, I, there's somebody else I know, and she and I were in a situation where... We and this other woman were having a meal together. This other woman, who was basically bonkers, suddenly burst into tears and ran out of the restaurant. Me and Barbara looked at each other and went like, why did Felicity just run out of the restaurant in tears? We'd better go and investigate. So we go and find her. She's like sobbing on a street corner nearby. And we say, what what on earth is wrong? Everything was absolutely fine. We were having a nice meal. Felicity says, you two were talking more to each other than to me. Oh, Felicity, grow up. Oh, yeah. I mean, Felicity has major jealousy issues and being left out issues. Okay. Okay. So, Barbara, who is like you, she's very direct. Mm -hmm. Barbara, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Okay. Barbara literally goes, oh, for fuck's sake, I am not having this. Sorry, I've done nothing wrong. We've done nothing wrong. Fuck that. And she storms off. Bit more direct than I would have been. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, yeah. The next day... Felicity rings Barbara, says, oh, I'm sorry I was a bit funny. And Barbara goes, oh, no worries. Forgets about it, because as far as Barbara's concerned, she said her piece. She's made her views clear. It's all over for Barbara. So if you can do that, react in the moment, and you say what you want to say, then you are going to be the kind of person less likely to feel the need to hold grudges. Now, I'm the opposite kind of person. I will never, never, no matter what the circumstances... If I'm the person who's been wronged or upset, if it's my kids, then I will, mm-hmm. as my kids' school will testify. Uh-huh. <laughs> but if it's just me, I will literally never say, I'm angry, I'm annoyed, I'm upset, ever, ever, ever. And so I feel that my grudge-holding system enables me to react how I want to react, have a semblance of justice in my head, change my behaviour accordingly so that I can make sure that I tailor my future relationships with those people in a way that protects me and, you know, that I'm not just endlessly being the victim of their bad behaviour. But it doesn't involve me actually going to them and saying, 
I'm annoyed about this. You did that wrong. And the reason I'm so reluctant to do that, Mm -hmm. and people have told me this is wrong of me, and I'm quite willing to accept that this is a failing of mine, but I, I also can't imagine ever getting past it. I somehow feel that to go and say to somebody, you've done something that I think was wrong and it's annoyed me or upset me, is in itself a wrong thing to do. Also, the great thing about holding grudges in a responsible way is that you become very aware that other people, whenever they want, can form grudges about you. And that's, yeah. a, and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Yeah. What about holding grudges against an institution? Is that useful? I don't talk about holding grudges against. I talk about grudges about. Okay. Because... You know, if grudges are a good thing, then we're never going to weaponize them against mm, anybody. So it's a just point. a grudge about somebody. Yeah. It immediately takes the negative judgment away from the word. Uh, yes, it is absolutely valid to have a grudge about an institution. So I, PC world. <laughs> I, I mean, lots of people, for example, at the moment... Actually, let's not use a real political... Po- well, let's use the Lib Dems because no one... Oh, actually, people do have not a grudge. A <laughs> people, people do have a grudge. OK, let's, this is a good example. So some people have a grudge against the Lib... About the Lib Dems yeah. because they voted for tuition fees having promised they yeah. wouldn't, OK? And they now, joined up with the Tories. And then they fucked off and look where we are. Do you have a grudge in the sense that... I if wouldn't vote for them again. OK, so that's a grudge. Yes. But so let's say somebody has a grudge about the Lib Dems for the tuition fees and for being in a coalition of the Tories. Then let's say in the space of two years, every single Lib Dem MP leaves to go and spend more time on their allotment or with their grandchildren and a whole new crop of Lib Dems turn up who were not there being MPs when all those things happen. Now then Hmm. you might want to think to yourself, okay. Is this institutional grudge still valid, given that none of the same people are there anymore? Well, I think that's quite interesting because that you, arguably, that's the Labour Party, isn't it? That's like the post-Iraq War Labour Party. There's going to come a point where no one, there's no one left. People still have grudges about, say, Tony Blair because of Iraq. We know why that is because he was there at the time and it was he was in charge. I know many, many people with massive grudges about the current Labour Party Mm. and none of those grudges have anything to do with Iraq. So actually the institution of the Labour Party, quite rightly, is no longer identified with Blair in Iraq. It's identified with Corbyn and McDonnell Mm. and Momentum. So that is an example of people adapting their view of the institution, the Labour Party, and having a different grudge. And the Iraq grudge then goes to Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell and all the people. So that's kind of sensible so like say if you had a grudge about like oh i don't know a hairdressing salon that you know used to be terrible and do terrible things to your hair without permission if every single member of that salon staff leaves and a whole new load of people turn up it possibly doesn't make any sense to still have a grudge about that salon actually thinking about okay where should that grudge go people wrongly imagine that moving on Mm. is best achieved by trying not to hold a grudge yeah all that does is makes your sort of natural instinct for justice and discernment Mm. more entrenched and feel invalidated and then the negative feelings last longer whereas you can draw a line under something by going i've decided what i think Here is my grudge. It validates my experience and I don't need to negotiate it with anyone. And now 
A line is drawn and I move on and I can have a cream tea with that person and have a lovely time because it's dealt with. Now, Sophie, I can't imagine that you're not up to something else exciting at the moment. (laughs) What is on the horizon in your world? Uh, Well, I'm writing more crime novels. I'm always writing new crime novels. But I have got a very exciting venture that I'm going to be launching in September. It's called Dream Author. And what it is, is a coaching programme for writers of any kind. So complete beginners who've got a book they really want to write or best-selling authors who are feeling a bit stuck and don't know what to do next. There are already lots of courses that teach people how to write, you know, how to write a crime novel, how to write a romance. There are also now courses about how to pitch to an agent, how to find a publisher. But what there isn't at all and this is why I've wanted to create this programme, a sort of coaching programme for writers that teaches you how to get out of your own way as a writer. So most of us, you know, writers face all kinds of challenges and obstacles. You might get a rejection, you might get a book published and then it only sells three copies and your publisher drops you. We all have all these challenges and failures along the way. Most writers I know at every level, from bestsellers to beginners, add to their own problems by thinking the most unhelpful thoughts Mm. possible about their situation. So they think things like, I'm a failure. What if I'm just not good enough? What if I should give up? So my programme, it's going to be a year-long programme. It's going to be insanely good value. And it's going to have weekly webinars where I coach people live on all their issues. And basically what I'm aiming for is that by the end of a year in the programme... Every writer should be in the position that I am in now. And the position that I am in now is that I am confident that, obviously, I'm going to have books that fail. Not everything's going to go well for me. Maybe my publisher will decide they don't want any frizzy-haired writers anymore and they're going to ditch me. Like, who knows? But I'm confident that whatever challenges come up, I will handle them in the best possible way by thinking the right thoughts and by managing my own contribution and making sure that I don't in any way add to my problems, but always act in a way that will get me to the next point of, you know, okay, where next? And always thinking positive and always sort of doing the best for myself. So so really, it's kind of like life stroke career coaching for writers. And if anybody is interested in hearing more about this, it starts in September, but anyone who signs up before it starts will get it half price which is even even (laughs) better value. So if you want to be added to the mailing list and receive more details about what exactly you get and what's involved, email sophie at sophiehanna.com and put dream author in the subject line. And the reason it's called dream author is that that phrase normally means an author who is a dream from a publisher's point of view. You know, I'm often told, oh, you're a dream author because I'll do events and I'll do interviews and I'm very sort of media friendly and all of that. But what my programme is about is getting authors to identify their own dreams and work out what it would mean to them to be an author whose dreams come true. That sounds great. Will you write my book for me? (laughs) (laughs) Is there another... Poirot there is the another Poirot on the horizon. I'm going to be writing it this year and publishing it next August or September. And I've got a brilliant idea for the motive for murder. And I've got a brilliant idea for the initial mystery. But they're too recent. If I'd solidified them already, I would tell you what they were. Yeah. Because uh, I love pitching 
an intriguing plot hook and everyone goes, oh, and what happens next? And I go, oh, I can't tell you. You'll have to wait till the book comes out. But I've only just had these ideas, so I don't want to reveal anything yet. But it's all very exciting. At Christmas, the brilliant Sarah Phelps Mm. um, created a a new piece of backstory for Poirot. Yes. Is that something that affects how you would write or does that exist in a different universe? It's a great question. And I think, you know, apart from anything else, it raises loads of fascinating questions about characters that become part of the sort of national imagination. My strong feeling is that my Poirot novels and Sarah's Poirot TV adaptations, on the one hand, we are both writing about Poirot. And I couldn't really say my Poirot is a different Poirot from her Poirot because it's all just Poirot. But I don't feel that when I write my next Poirot novel, or indeed the ones I've already written, my Poirot wasn't a priest. And I think that's fine. Just in the way that the different screen Poirots, like Kenneth Branagh's Poirot, has a very different moustache from David Suchet's. And John Malkovich had also a different facial hair arrangement. Now, what's interesting is fans are going... I like this moustache. I don't like that moustache. So everyone says that. But no one's going, we need to reconcile the facial hair situation (laughs) so that we have one definitive Poirot that everyone can believe in. Nobody thinks that. So I I think, you know, it's absolutely fine for my Poirot, who was a Belgian policeman, never was a priest, never had a congregation burnt to death. Uh, His moustache is most like David Suchet's. And it's fine for that Poirot to exist in my books. And it's also fine for Sarah's Poirot to exist in her TV adaptations. And what you find is that the fans, some of them are happy to consume both. Some prefer one to the other. And that's okay. I mean, what I think is really brilliant is that Poirot, a character invented round about 100 years ago, is, you know, still so important to us that there's these different versions and you know on twitter at christmas sarah's adaptation was the you know like but isn't it amazing that everyone is so excited to discuss poirot and sarah actually tweeted i'm really proud of the fact that i've made everyone really discuss poirot and and it's great for christy to be still perceived as you know a contemporary issue which is exactly what my books and sarah's adaptations are all about it's all about going hey guys What do we think about Agatha Christie? And so it's interesting that, you know, Sarah's trying to do something very different with Agatha Christie and and change Poirot so, so that she's adding something new to the character. My approach was deliberately the opposite. And when I was first asked to write the books, I said to the Christie family, I don't want to change Poirot at all from the character Agatha created. What I want to do is bring new mysteries to him. So now there's two different approaches out there and people can discuss them yeah. both. And, and I think that's a great thing. Thank you so much for your time. How You're to welcome. Hold a Grudge is in all good bookshops. It's in all good bookshops. And where will we find and the your podcast? podcast? So the How to Hold a Grudge podcast, I should say, it's not just a repeat of the material in the book. After I published the book, I realised that since I am currently the world's only grudge guru, <laughs> that I still needed to do lots of work. So all my new grudge research is in the podcast. And that is also called How to Hold a Grudge. And it's on iTunes, Spotify, you know, just anywhere where podcasts podcast are. podcast platform of choice. Yes, exactly. Thank exactly. you, Sophie. Thank you. Standard issue.
for all women.